Welcome everyone to Monday Match Analysis. I'm Gil Gross. On today's show, we're going to get into Andre Rublev's offense, how he was able to win his 19th straight match in an ATP 500, beating Martin Fushevich's Monday Match Analysis's favorite dark horse in the final in Rotterdam, which was a, a pretty loaded field, although a lot of people dropped out. And uh, good for Fushevich's to get to the end there. But Rublev's reign over the ATP 500s uh, continues. He has now won four straight ATP 500s. Also in the show, we will look ahead to Roger Federer's return in Doha. And I specifically want to look at a couple of the things that he said uh, in his pre-tournament press conference because there are a couple of things to draw from that. But first, Novak Djokovic. As of tomorrow, well, depending on when I post this video, maybe as of today, yeah, as of today, will uh, be will hold the record for the most weeks at number one. Number three hundred and eleven is this week. That is officially uh, five point nine eight years. It's about six years of time when Novak Djokovic has been world number one and doing it in. Obviously, in the presence of of Nadal and Federer, one of the major goals that I think Novak had for his career, as soon as it became apparent that he was, you know, had a chance to really uh, break some of the the hardest and most important records in the sport. I think he's always wanted to do this, and obviously now it is the Slam record, and that's kind of what is next because I think that two things matter in this sport more than anything else. It's how how often are you number one and how many majors are you winning? And that's going to be the most important thing when it comes to history. I don't think that things like winning every Masters 1000 title, which Novak Djokovic has done, um, perhaps winning, winning each one twice. I actually don't think that these things are going to be as important if, if ties don't need to be broken. I actually think head-to-head would be before the whole... Uh, Masters stuff, right? So I actually think, but remember how important Masters are to finish year-end number one. I'm not saying Masters aren't most important. I'm saying the number one ranking is probably what is uh, more important than individual titles at sub-majors, if, if, you're, if you're catching my drift. So big one for Djokovic, and uh, he's probably not going to get caught. Obviously, this is another fluid thing, but you, you wouldn't think that Federer has much of a chance to catch him. So it's significant. And even he himself, who is never shy about his aspirations to to break records, um, he said, "Now, now it's about the majors. Now it's about focusing on on uh, trying to compete and win as many majors as he possibly can." I also thought it was interesting before I move on from this that he didn't really have like any individual super long reign at number one. The longest reign he had was July 2014. To November 2016. That's pretty long. But other than that, every time he became number one, he only kept the number one ranking for about a year before surrendering it to either Federer or Nadal. So he's really been a model of consistency. He's hung around. And I think by you know any metric you look at, it just makes this 2010 through 2020 decade even more impressive. So congrats to Novak. That's a big one. All right, let's go to this Rotterdam final. I'm not going to do the typical analysis that that I might do because uh really just has to do with some personal 
um, stuff. But I did watch the match. I just couldn't watch it a second time, which is something that I, I always do um, if I have the time. But here are some of the things that I saw in this match. First of all, what a strange court surface at Rotterdam. Weird, weird stuff. Really slow and gritty. So, you know, topspin was kind of bouncing high and kick serves had a lot of action and jump off the court, but just so slow. My God, it was weirdly slow. And I, I thought for that reason... Rublev couldn't lean on his serve and wasn't playing a lot of short points off of his first serve. And part of that is Fushevich's movement. He's he's an unbelievable mover, so it's hard to play short points against him. So he's going to track down balls and extend rallies. But Rublev really didn't have the serve dominance that he has a lot of the time. And he also had a lot of trouble on the second serve return, especially in the first set. He's really good on, on return at the love all game in the second set when he ultimately got the break, which kind of let him ride to the 6-4 victory in the second set. But the first set, he did not return the second serve well by Fushevich's. Again, the, the courts were so gritty. Fushevich's has a great kick serve. I, I like his kick serve a lot. And Andre was just not teeing it up, not making solid contact, and not doing what he needed to do to break serve on Fushevich's second serve. So all this to say, Andre had to do this one the hard way. This was not easy. He really had to win baseline rallies against, as I've said many times, fit as a fiddle, great mover, and someone who has a lot of big power as well in Martin Fushevich. Sometimes he can make a lot of errors off of either wing, but when he's not, he's an absolute problem. Absolute problem. He is... Monday match analysis's favorite dark horse for this reason, because of the way he he moves, because of how fit he is, because of his second serve, because of his fitness, all all really really good. And I thought he played great here. I really think that Fushevich played a great level. So Andre had to do it the hard way, win baseline rallies against Martin Fushevich. How did he do it? He did it with the Andre Rublev offense. I think I've covered this to some extent in the past, but I want to do it a little bit more. I want to be thorough here and uh, kind of talk about a couple of things. So the Andre Rublev offense is all about ad court dominance for the most part. We all know how good his forehand is. So obviously in the deuce court, when he's hitting forehands, he is quite good. He but but I really think the ad court is the cross-court rally that he actually wants to play. And he's really difficult to deal with in this ad court rally because of how he hits his inside-out forehand. It's a, a shot that almost never misses. He doesn't miss it. It's in the court every time, and it's big, and it is heavy. And if you look at the stats, I have them for the first set, but not the second set. If you look at the first set stats, the Hawkeye stats... He's 73% to Martin Fushevich's forehand. I mean, excuse me, backhand. Into the ad court. He's going every single time. Big, heavy. And then he's cheating to his left. It's actually what David Ferrer, sorry, 71% to Martin Fushevich's backhand. 7% up the middle, just 22% to his forehand. Uh, that's what has always reminded me of David Ferrer. 
Ferrer does not hit as big as Rublev. He doesn't hit his serve as big, doesn't hit his forehand as big, doesn't hit his backhand as big, and as a result, was a much more defensive player. But when he had to be offensive or when he tried to be offensive, it was the same construct, the same point construction, which is I'm going to hit heavy, hard forehands into the backhand corner. Then I'm going to cheat to my left, use my footwork, and eventually when I want to inch towards finishing the point or when I want to finish the point, that's when I'm going to pull it inside in. Or I might finish it um, on my you know hitting extra angle inside out. But ultimately, I'm going to open up one shot and one shot only. There's only one way that you're going to do damage on me, which is if you hit a really great backhand down the line off of my heavy, heavy forehand inside out. You're going to have to change direction and deal with my pace at the same time and hit over the high part of the net and hit with less court to work with when the baseline is actually closer so it's more likely you're going to hit it long. long. I'm going to give it to you. If you can do that, here you go. It's open the whole match. And Fushevich recognized that. And it was open for him. And he tried to hit it a lot. He started going down the line a lot on his backhand about midway through the first set when he realized that he had to. When he realized that that was the shot that was open. And he made it sometimes. And he missed it a lot. He missed it in some crucial moments, in some really big spots. And then there were some other spots where he he went for it and it bled towards the middle. And now Rublev has a forehand in the middle of the court. And normally the then the lacrosse court forehand to the deuce side is open. So Rublev makes it so that there's only one way out of this. Only one way. Which is generally that you need to hit a great backhand down the line. He gives it to you. Silver platter. The other way is you can hit a great backhand cross court. And the reason I say great and not decent and not good and not average is because Rublev, with his court positioning and the way he's cheating with his footwork, pretty much if you hit a mediocre backhand cross court, Andre's going to make that a forehand. And that's, that's his commitment to his court positioning and his footwork. Um, and then you're not out of the woods. You gotta, I want to give a ton of credit to Andre's backhand because if you hit that great cross-court backhand and get it to Andre's backhand, he does a tremendous job at protecting it and going back cross-court and then putting you in the same predicament. Um, he's still camped in, in the ad corner and he's still daring you to change direction on a backhand down the line. Rublev has a, a really, really precise backhand cross-court that he hits with a ton of depth on a pretty consistent basis. That is the Andre Rublev offense. So where am I going with this other than the fact that the reason Martin Fushevich really couldn't beat Andre Rublev is he could not execute the counter backhand down the line or the pattern changing backhand down the line with enough consistency. Yeah, that's the reason that's that's where that's where Rublev had the had all the baseline rallies won. It was I'm going to make this an ad court rally, whether you like it or not. And I'm going to win that ad court rally. That was Rublev's commitment. By the way, it completely neutralized Fushevich's slice. Because if Fushevich could have sliced it to Rublev's backhand, 
and Marton Slice is excellent, well, then he could have done what players like Dan Evans do to Andre Rublev, which is make him hit that low backhand inside the court that puts him in a vulnerable position defensively. Why couldn't Fushevich just do that with his great slice? He couldn't do that because Rublev was turning them into forehands every single time. So he could not get his backhand slice into the Rublev backhand with any kind of consistency. But it's also evident in the head-to-head. If you look at Andre Rublev's head-to-head, I think this can be pretty insightful uh, because you can see that players who have great counter backhand down the line, most notably Daniil Medvedev and Alexander Zverev, well, he's 0-8 against those two. 0-2 against Nadal. The pattern doesn't work against Nadal because it's to Rafa's forehand. So you're not going to pin Nadal into his forehand corner um, and kind of, you know, just feast off of that. First of all, Nadal is going to get it to Rublev's backhand. He's not going to just sit there and hit forehands. It's not really going to work. And also, Nadal is going to have the counter forehand down the line, just like Medvedev and Zverev have the counter backhand down the line. Andre Rublev is giving you that shot. When, when your offense comes from your inside-out forehand, at least that is the most comfortable place for, for uh, Rublev and Ferrer, in this case, as an example, as a parallel, that is where they comfortably generate their offense and construct the point. That is the disruptor. So while Rublev has an 0-4 record against Medvedev, an 0-4 record against Zverev, an 0-2 record against Lefty Nadal, 0-1 record against Schwartzman, who has one of the best backhands in the world, 2-3 against Berrettini, a player who... Um, oh, well, that doesn't count. He should be better against Berrettini. That's a great backhand slice. That's the slice, and sometimes he's had trouble with the slice. Uh, but if you look at those those players, the first four that I mentioned in particular, he's never played Novak Djokovic. But I really don't think that it would be pretty if he did at this point in his career. I think he'd have the same problem. Uh, and then you look at the players who he has impressively so, a winning record against. Well, how about these one-handed backhands that don't have counter great counter backhands down the line. He's 1-0 against Federer. It's never been Roger's favorite shot, has it? The, the, the backhand down the line from a defensive position, it's not really Federer's jam. 3-3 three and three against Tsitsipas. Non-existent. Doesn't really have that shot. 3-2 and two against team. Among the one-handers, I think Dominic can do it pretty well. But still... There's your one-handed backhands. Rublev loves those. But I think even if you're righty, and Rublev won the most recent matchup against Berrettini, by the way, the important one at the U.S. Open. Um, Even if you're a righty, Rublev is not going to lose to weak righty backhands. He's going to lose to the strongest, the most elite righty backhands. The righty backhands that can make Rublev pay for camping in the ad side corner and looking to hit forehands from there. You make Rublev, you put Rublev on the run, make him hit forehands on the run on the deuce court. That's going to open up the court court for you. Then you can start moving him around, running him around. Um, And then you can stretch him out on the backhand, make him defend the backhand. Now he is not an incredibly difficult player to deal with. But if you are not comfortable taking a heavy, heavy inside-out forehand 
and changing direction with your backhand down the line, newsflash, 90% of players are not comfortable doing that. 90%. But if you're not comfortable doing that, Rublev's going to be a nightmare with that pattern. And he absolutely... Um, he absolutely terrorized Fushevics with his ad court play, with his court, with his play on the ad court rally, especially uh, using the inside out forehand, inside in combination. And when he had to hit backhands, I want to emphasize this. I really do. When he has to hit backhands, they're really, really good. Cross court, not as much down the line. They're okay down the line. They're fine. But cross-court, they are really, really good. He protects that side and oftentimes protects it so well that he can get himself on a, for, uh, a forehand on the next ball. In fact, when when you were watching the semifinal against Tsitsipas, when Rublev played Tsitsipas, and um, that was an excellent match, the biggest difference was that when Rublev had to hit backhands, he could keep it out of the middle of the court enough to actually get it away from Tsitsipas's big weapon, the forehand. When Tsitsipas had to hit backhands, sometimes it wasn't good enough. Sometimes he could not keep it out of the center of the court well enough to avoid Andrei Rublev's Thor-like forehand. So I thought that was a, a big deal in the semifinal. All right, let us move on to the DB4 stat of the week. For more tennis history, check out www db4tennis.com. This week's insight is about older players and how as someone's career goes on and on and on, their chances to win their first Grand Slam decrease. In the Open era, a player in their 30s or over 30 has only won their first Grand Slam twice. It's happened one time at the Australian Open with Peter Korda. It's happened two times in Paris with Andres Himeno in 1972, and Andres Gomez in 1990. AG initials for both. How about that? In Wimbledon in New York, no player who has passed their 30th birthday has ever won their first major. The closest examples of that happening is Goran Ivanisevic, Novak Djokovic's current coach, in 2001, who was just about 30 years old. He was 29 years, 9 months, and uh, 26 days. He is the oldest first-time champ, champ at Wimbledon. Dominic Team, I didn't know this. Dominic Team, 27 years old in 10 days, is the oldest first-time champion in the history of the U.S. Open. That's unbelievable. And uh, among these four, by the way, it's kind of interesting, a couple of them are lefties. Korda, Gomez, and Ivanisevic, all left-handed. All right, thank you for DB4 Tennis. That was... Your stat of the week. Let me end with uh, Roger Federer. A couple of things that he had to say uh, before he embarks on Doha. A couple of things to know about that. Qatar Open. Or is it Qatar? I think it's Qatar, but to me, Qatar sounds a little bit better. And I'm not really sure what the correct pronunciation is. I don't know. Um, I've heard it both ways. So, he will play the winner of Jeremy Shardy and Dan Evans. That will be his first match back. I'm sure that'll get a lot of eyes. I'm very excited to see it. I miss watching Roger. I'm sure everyone else does as well. And Dominic Team and Andre Rublev are also in this tournament. They are in opposite sides of Federer's draw. So you know that he has a decent chance of making the final. But don't tell him that because he'll say, no, no, no. No, I am not. He said, quote, 
My expectations are very low. I have a lot of questions. I hope to surprise myself. He said, quote, till Wimbledon, all the tournaments will serve just to get ready. I won't care too much about the results. It's the first time ever in my career that I felt like this. I don't know that the last part of that is accurate because you could pull up his the things he said right before the 2017 Australian Open. Similar stuff. Similar stuff saying the pressure is off. This is smart. He needs to try to get into this mindset. It will not only make him, first of all, it's realistic. Second of all, it'll make him a more dangerous player. And it is smart of him to take as much pressure off himself as humanly possible. And putting all of putting this energy out there is the exact energy that he wants to put out there. Uh, with that being said, I do think he, you know, he wants to be careful. You don't want to put too much pressure on yourself uh, in in Wimbledon. Don't don't make that the uh, the end all be all, even if it is. Uh, but I think that Roger. All in all, he's saying all the right things. He will be skipping Miami, and then he will be playing Dubai. Just goes to show you, he, he really he doesn't care about the rankings because he's going to lose 500 points by not playing Miami. thought it was interesting that he elected to play Dubai when he has those championship points, 2019 championship points to defend in Miami. 50% of those will come off. He will get to keep some because of the adjusted rankings system. In terms of clay court season, I love what he said here. He said that he intends to play on clay, not for results, but for physical conditioning. That's if he feels 100% healthy, you know, if he feels good, he's going to play clay. I think that's exactly right. I think Federer really learned from how he felt in 2018 heading into Wimbledon. And I think he learned, of course, that was the year he lost to Kevin Anderson. I think he learned from 2019 and how good he felt coming into Wimbledon. So if he can play clay, uh, he is going to. The last thing is he did express the desire to play in front of full crowds again. And that is kind of what I suspect. And just here's to Roger Federer um, getting to that point. But I just want to throw it out there. He, he wants to get there. And why would he put himself through all that he's put himself through if, you know, he was going to say, all right, that's enough. Bye. Um, so, you know, I don't like to speculate on, on retirement, but I do think that it was interesting. You know, he, he said, yeah, I, I don't want to leave in this when the world is in the state that the world is in now. And I think that totally makes tons of sense. And I don't think anyone really wants to see that. So I just thought that was interesting. I uh, wanted to throw those quotes out there. Um, let's see how he looks, you know, without pressure. I, I do think that um, he looked pretty graceful. He looked pretty good. <laughs> his movement looked good in his practice videos, but I'm, uh, I'm more inclined to, to get into Roger Federer after we see what he brings to the court in Qatar. So, uh, no mailbag this week. I have some work stuff that I have to take care of, but certainly Monday match analysis, we will go over most likely how Roger Federer looked in this match. And, uh, maybe we'll, uh, the, the Qatar final might be great. The, uh, Qatar Open Doha final. Uh, so I will uh, talk to everyone again in a week. Remember, Monday Match Analysis is available on all podcast platforms. Make sure you're following me on Twitter at Gil, at Gil Gross with an underscore in between Gil and Gross. Hope you enjoyed. Don't forget to subscribe, and I will see you next time.